Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. One of the best lessons that I learned from my interviews actually came from a guy named Noah Kagan. He said, I hire great people because unlike most people, what I do is I get them to do the job. He said, always ask applicants to do a little bit of your job and a little bit of the job that they'd be doing for you as a way of gauging whether they're any good. And so I do that using forms and then you have to kind of keep track of all the responses. You have to go through them. It's, it's, it's a process to create it. It's a process to manage it, but it, it works. Well, joining me as an entrepreneur, Omar Molad, he is the founder of Vervo. He said, you know what? This is the way to do it. If you want to hire people, don't just base it on their resumes. Don't spend endless time trying to figure out if they could do the job. Have them do the job. Have them do an audition. And when I first heard this, Omar, I thought this was brilliant. But I miss so much of what you do until you and I, and I even use the software, until you and I talked, I didn't realize how much of it you did. Anyway, company's doing well. I invited him here to talk about how he came up with this idea, how he got his first customers, how he coded it up, how he kept um, growing it. And we could do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first is HostGator for hosting websites. The second, if you're sending out email, I want you to know about Send in Blue, the email marketing company. Omer, good to have you here. Hey, Andrew, excited to be here. What's your revenue right now? What can you tell me about how big the business is? Yeah, so we, we don't disclose revenue. That's not in our interest. What I can tell you is that we're about to raise um, a fairly big Series A. And so that should give most people in the tech ecosystem a fairly good understanding of um, where we're up to in our evolution. And the funding now has come from where? Funding's come from first angel, then venture. And we also have a strategic investor, an Australian uh, talent marketplace called Seek. You said there are a variety of influences. One of them on the creation of the company, one of them is an article by Matt Mullenweg, the creator of WordPress. What was the article about? How did it influence you? Yeah, so there's a couple of things uh, in addition to our own journey. So David, my co-founder, read an article about how how they hire at Automatic and that they do auditions. And for them, that means bringing someone in to spend a week. Um, and that's like a wonderful a way to, to figure out not just is someone going to be competent, but also how how that person get along with the team, what impact will they have. We love that. But um, the other thing is David and I, we, we got involved in a film. We invested in a film and I actually came to LA to sit on set, one of the most fascinating experiences I've ever had. Cloris Leachman, it's called This Is Happening, and Cloris Leachman, um, who died recently, sadly, was um, one of the main the stars of the film. And um, and what we realized with the, the movie industry is that, like, they've really nailed this. They do casting by audition. So it doesn't really matter, you know, what movie you did previously. And maybe you're great for movie A, but not suitable for, for movie B. And, you know, we took that. We looked at sort of what Automatic's doing. And we basically said, okay, well, why not use technology to create that authentic audition process in a really efficient and scalable way? For, for every job, for hiring. You know, why just the movie industry? Why not? Do, and instead of the week long come into my office, why not do it in 30 minutes online? Did you experience this problem yourself? I was looking at your background. I think just before this, you were working for the National Australia Bank. It doesn't seem like you had this issue personally, did you? Yeah, I, def- I definitely did. So like, it's funny. It's funny. So I grew up in, I grew up in Tel Aviv and 
Um, and, and I came from a middle class, uh, you know, background. I'm not going to sort of claim to be um, really disadvantaged. Um, and I served in the military and I worked at a couple of cool startups. I went to a really good school. I had what would, would be considered in Israel a good resume. Uh, and then I moved to Melbourne and I applied to 100 jobs and couldn't get an interview anywhere. Um, and it, and it, it wasn't in my case because of the color of my skin or my gender, but it was because I didn't have a degree and no one could pronounce my name. And I was this guy from the Middle East and people just didn't know what to do with that. And, and I kind of went from like good resume to bad resume in an instant overnight. It really frustrated me. Um, and so then I kind of did it like the long way and I went and got a law degree and I got myself into the corporate world. And it, it just really burnt me that, you know, why can't they just give me a chance? Why can't they see my potential? I'm more than, I've got more to offer than sort of just what's written on paper. Um, and, and so, you know, that sensation, you know, a lot of people have experienced that millions and, and in ways that are harsher than I have. Um, and then later on, um, and this is kind of something that's common to both David and I, we were running big teams and we saw that, uh, that the sort of top performers in our teams you couldn't pick them necessarily out of a lineup. They're not the ones that have the grades you'd expect or worked at the companies you'd expect, but they have a lot of common traits. They're curious, they're conscientious, um, they apply themselves, you know, they develop mastery in different areas. And it just became obvious that, you know, there's this big disconnect between uh, how companies make decisions and what people have to offer. And it's really kind of the architecture is really, um, it favors privilege. Uh, and we want to do something about it. And we drew inspiration from the places that I mentioned earlier. And, and that's sort of the foundation for our company. You know what? It's not just privilege. It's also there's some people who are really good at doing interviews. And there's some people who are great at doing the job. And for some reason, being evaluated freezes them up. And they just can't perform in that show you how, how great I am uh, mode. And I've noticed that before, and I've had these like fantasies that somebody will become an agent for employees, you know, for that period where you're going and, and getting the job. Let somebody else represent you because some people could do the job, other other people can can promote it. You're mentioning, by the way, the Army. Speaking of experience that you can't really put down on paper, you told our producer about some pretty interesting experiences in leadership in the Army. Like one time you were up five days in a row. One time you had, as a, like a kid in your 20s, you had to manage 40 soldiers. Can you talk a little bit about what the experience was like and what you learned? Sure. So I, I served uh, in, the, uh, in the military in, in, in Israel, which is, which is mandatory, and, um, and I, I was an, uh, an officer, so I, I was a leadership. It took two years to get to that point, a lot of training and development, and, and then I, I led a platoon in the armored forces, which basically means tanks. Um, <clears throat> And I was 20, and if you think of most people at the age of 20, what, what the hell do you know when you're 20? Nothing. Uh, but you go through intense training, and now you're responsible for lives and people, and a lot of them, are, you know, they don't really want to be there, and they're exhausted, and they're homesick, um, and they're under physical and mental duress, but you've got to get them to do stuff. And so it kind of forces you to really think about, well, okay, you can't just, like, bark orders at people all day. That's going to wear thin after about 30 minutes. So... How do you sort of really connect with people and get people to sort of mo motivate people to go in the same direction and achieve something together and feel like they're part of something? So I spent a lot of time sort of thinking about that. Um, I visited 
most of my soldiers on the weekend at, at their home, at their family home, to learn about their families and their personal circumstances. Um, and, and so that, that was kind of, for me, a game changer because people then realized that, yeah, okay, like maybe this is a, a shitty situation, but this guy cares about me um, even though he's a hard ass. Uh, and, and so that, that was something, um, yeah, I, I, I did once go through a, a horrible stretch of sleep deprivation, which was just unfortunate circumstance. I wasn't like, this wasn't like some sort of enemy torture. It was just, we were in a, a training stretch and we were short staffed and, I kind of, you know, I, I, I was very, I took my role seriously, maybe too seriously. Um, but I sort of started to feel the, the effects of, um, prolonged lack of sleep, um, which is, which I, I really try not to do that anymore. Um, more than what one to day. You? you start, um, having mood swings, you start, you lose memory, um, and you, you just really like blank out. Um, and, and at one point, like I fell asleep, stand, leaning on a pole in the middle of a, someone was giving a talk and it, it just gets really hard. Like the body starts shutting down on you. Um, and, and I, I really like to anyone listening out there who's a founder, like this is not some sort of like glorifying hustling, like it's just unhealthy. So I, I'm not, not trying to recommend this in, in any way, shape or form. But what, what I took out of the military is this, um, any context that I'm in now, any situation that I'm in now is in comparison, easy and comfortable. So I have something to draw on where, you know, the, the pressure was more extreme, the people were more diverse and so on. But I can always look back and say, okay, well, I've been in this situation that's as le at least as challenging um, as this one. And I dug deep and I found something. So, so, so let's put things in 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 perspective um and that and that's a really helpful and people don't i think in the corporate world companies don't really know what to do with military experience but you know if you're if you're looking at a job candidate who's been in the military well they've been through a lot chances are they've been through a lot and they have something to offer um in in what's known unfairly as the kind of soft skills be it resilience tenacity um, coachability. And that's something that's really helped me throughout my career a lot. All right. So you decided there's an idea here, the audition, it's got to be faster and has to be spread out to more industries. What's the first step you took to build it? Funnily enough, we built it, um, which sounds crazy because in hindsight, we probably should have done a lot more research. But had we done a lot more research and been a lot more sensible, we wouldn't have, um, maybe we wouldn't have even, it would have been too sobering and maybe we, we would never be here. So you have to be a little bit insane and naive at the same time. We built a prototype, it was crap. And we got a few companies to use it and they used it and they were like, we like the problem, but it's crap. Can you make it better? Like literally we kind of mm. stumbled our way through what was the crap process. version? It, it, so, so we built something that the um, it solved a problem. Like it actually did testing, which was good. That part wasn't crap, but the onboarding was horrible. So you couldn't understand on your own what you're supposed to do. And we mm. kind of thought, oh, there are all these companies like Atlassian where they don't have a sales team and people just like get it and use it. And why don't we do that? Yeah. But <laughs> there's a lot more to it to sort of to building something that sort of 
a, a new way of doing things and be intuitive to use and understand, that is not straightforward. That took us quite a while. So I think we were naive in that respect in the, in the early days. Let me pause on that. So I imagine the first version was like a form editor, right? Kind of like um, a survey monkey type of thing. Yeah, with, you're not you're not wrong. So so it was like there was no machine Trello. learning, no right. machine learning. Exactly. So there was no data, no machine learning. It was basically like question and answer. It was a little yep. bit more than a form, but but basically yes, like it was answer this question question, um, and then the the hire the sort of recruiter or hiring manager on the other side would review the responses, and we started adding more formats. That was it. And some way of keeping track of where someone is in the system. So they filled out this form as a way of testing to see if they know what they're talking about. Then it gets passed on to someone else who then starts to screen. And then the screening process was also built in the first version of Vervo, right? In fact, you mentioned uh, Kanban. So as a second iteration, we added Kanban, which sounded, we felt like we were geniuses at the time, but in hindsight caused a lot of problems because then people thought we were an applicant tracking system and um, and sort of cr it created feature creep. So we needed to build all these other things and we, we didn't want to, we just wanted to focus on testing, which we've now gone back to. Um, but, but you're right, we built essentially kind of like a mini system, a, a Trello board um, that allows you to test people at different stages and then move them along the funnel um, and then later on, what we did was we narrowed the focus and went a lot deeper into testing and left the other stages of hiring for other systems to do because that's just not core business for us. And can you integrate back with like a workable or something? Yeah. So now we integrate with most applicant tracking systems and mm. um, constantly adding new ones. Uh, it's just a question of engineering time, but we're agnostic about, in fact, we prefer that customers use an, an ATS. Um, you know, greenhouse or in the enterprise, it'll be, you know, right. smart recruiters or a success factors. And, and, and we prefer that because then they don't ask us to do those things. And they, Why? what's so hard about it? It feels like those things are easy. Just keep, it's basically a Kanban board, which multiple people can, um, can, can collaborate on. What's the problem with that? Yeah. So as, as companies get bigger, they have more compliance requirements, more record keeping requirements. It acts as a system of record. They want to do uh, reference checks and background checks and onboarding and eligibility criteria and chatbot and all these kind of extra things that they seem small, but trust me, they take a lot of time to develop well. Um, okay. They produce reporting and, and really that's like kind of it's core in hiring, but it's not necessarily core in what we consider to be the hardest problem in selection, which is predicting job performance, right? And so for us, what we want to focus on is proficiency. Can you do the job? And then all these other kind of like um, additional reference points or kind of like administration of the hiring process, that is not, um, you know, that's another business. That's not something that, that we want to focus on. And, and it is, it does get, it does become, a lot of work to build out those things. Okay, so I get what the first version was like. How did you get those first users who told you we're confused by this, but we you're addressing a problem we care about? We got them in the way that I imagine a lot of founders um, get their first users. We sort of like through our network, through begging and scrapping and like calling people. We had a few. We started to get like 
we had very bad SEO, but we had, despite not investing in SEO, we actually like people found us on Google, which we thought was magic. We thought it was sorcery that you can put a website on the internet and just someone in like Texas finds you and registers. So we started like basically asking everyone to have a conversation and understand And 50% of the time they agreed and they said, let me tell you why this is kind of shit, but actually really interesting. I've been looking for something uh. like this. And, and, we, and we thought that was like every conversation like that blew our mind. Um, and so we, we, so we started to learn really, really quickly from people. And so what we realized, it gave us a lot of confidence because we realized we're solving the right problem. We're just like, a, we have a user experience issue, it's fine, but that you can solve, but we knew there was a market. And, and so that's like very motivating that you understand you're on the right track, but you have to make it easier for people. Okay. You know what? Let me take a moment, talk about my first sponsor, and then I want to come back and see how did you, how did you know what to do to make it easier? But before, you know, before I do both of those, Vervo, the name, where'd that come from? It means it the mean? real you. We don't talk, we've got it. We hired a new head of sales and he, and he actually said to me, one of the first thing he said to me was, that's amazing. It's the real you. Why don't you ever talk about that? Um, it, it means in the real language? you it's in Latin, uh, in Latin. Um, it's, it's, uh, we like the sound of it. It means something that kind of really resonates with us. It's what we're doing. We're showing companies the real you and it just stuck with us. And, and that's what we went with. The one, I like the name. I like everything it means. The one problem is, like, I can imagine a lot of people would drop the E at the end of the name when they're typing it in and then end up on, I don't know what this website is for some other Vervo. Well, I'll issue? let our performance marketers figure out how to get all that traffic <laughs> to our site anyway. <laughs> I'm looking at your face and I feel like, oh, we've got such goodwill here. And now I just insulted the name with. No, the e not point. at all. How does it, um, since, we're, since I didn't insult you yet, how does a guy from Israel have such an Australian accent? So I was fortunate enough, my, my grandmother on my mother's side grew up uh, in her childhood, childhood years, spent her childhood years in, in Australia, in Melbourne, and then uh, made Aliyah, went to Israel uh, and, and met my, my um, late grandfather. Um, and we all grew up in Israel, but uh, we had Australian passports through inheritance, which is just like, if you're ever going to sort of get lucky, that's a really great way to get lucky to get an Australian passport. Um, and when I was young, when I was four, my parents, we all moved uh, here and lived here for what was going to be three years and turned into seven. So um, what you call elementary school and in Australia we call primary school, but that's sort of like to grade six I did in Australia. And so that's the only English I know, the sort of uh, the, uh, the love it or hate it, the Aussie, the crocodile Dundee Aussie accent. I love it. When I was in, I, w I went to NYU and then I would see people who came in from the UK and Australia in Manhattan with their freaking accents. Nobody paid attention to me from Queens with my like New York style of speaking. If they came from there, anything they said, people would stop and pay attention to it. Boy, did I want one of those accents. All right, but I got mine. I'm going to sell using my accent. Service called Send in Blue. Omer, I'm guessing you don't know what they are, right? I don't. You don't. I'm about to introduce you to them. What they do is email marketing. So you might say the same thing that I said when I first heard about them. Who needs another email marketing company? This thing is solved. Here's how it's solved, though. The problem is that most email software starts you off pretty inexpensively. And then like a guy I was just talking to, a founder I was just talking to recently, suddenly he sends out one email and boom, his price goes up because they 
they meter it based on number of emails you send and some random like escalation process, or a lot of them are based on how many email addresses you have in their database. And so the more unsubscribes you get, even if you're not mailing to them, the more your price goes up. It just gets endless. You know what they said, Send in Blue? We're not going to charge crazy prices. We're going to give you fair price early on. And if you look at our price all the way up to the end, you're going to see reasonable pricing. And in the past, I've talked to Omar about all the different features that they have. I would tell people about how they have like chat bots, chat services, the plugin, how they would do text messages about how they do email marketing automation that also includes text messages. Nobody's eyes, everyone's eyes did what your eyes doing right now. It's like, okay. As soon as I talk about how the price is too expensive, even if you're adding email addresses that you're never mailing because you just need them in the system to keep track of uh, your past customers, business people go, oh, that is a problem I've had. So that's what I've been talking up. The services send in blue. If if you've never heard of them, go look them up. These guys have raised over $190 million. So they've got good backing. They've got great reputation and they're fantastic service. I highly recommend you go to, in fact, if you want to use it for free, go to this URL, sendinblue.com slash Mixergy, sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. And if you have even the slightest problem with them, my email address is Andrew at Mixergy. Let me know. I'm telling you, this is an eye opener. Any marketer should know about Send in Blue. All right, let's continue then. How, what's your, what was your process for understanding where people were confused with the first version of Vervo and what to do to help them understand and how, help them keep using the product? So there are a couple of components to that. One is um, we spent time talking to customers and my co-founder, David, if he was here, he'd tell you that he's not a fan of asking customers what the answer is. He just wants to understand like what problem, what their goal is and what problem they're trying to solve. But it's really the onus is on us to innovate and to figure out a solution. And it's not about iterating or copying what someone else has done. It's figuring out what's the behavior we want to drive. What's the kind of optimal, what does the power user look like with our product and how do we create a journey that makes it easy and encourages that? That's the first thing. The second thing is um, we realized that you know, because we're creating a category, we're doing something that's, that's new. Uh, maybe we need, you know, maybe we need a sales team. Maybe we need people, um, human beings to go and talk to customers, not just to sell, but to learn, to learn through the buyer journey, what, what people are looking for. And maybe we haven't discovered all the use cases of our product. Not maybe that was definitely true. And, and how do we sort of have those conversations that otherwise people wouldn't have with us? And so we did both those things. We spent a lot of time on user experience um, and, and a, lot of, a lot of it was trial and error. It was building things really rapidly, testing, seeing what's not working, where the drop-off points are, and then fixing. And then we also started uh, incorporating, we, we added a sales team and we, we, it wasn't about forcing, it was, we still gave people a choice, but it was up to them. Do you want to discover the product on your own through a free trial? That's fine. Do you want to talk to someone? That's also fine. We didn't want to be like a closed shop. Most of our competitors, it's a demo only. You have to talk to yeah. sales. And, so, and, and we, we've always had transparent pricing on the website. And we've always, we've always had sort of an open door in some format, free, free trial or free tier, to allow people, whether even if they're a big for a big company, uh, to discover the product, maybe they're not ready to have a conversation. So they're the two main things that we did. 
in the beginning, and I want to talk to you about the sales part because I've been thinking about that ever since you told our producer. It's just been in my head. But in the beginning, before you had salespeople, was it you calling up your customers? Was it doing screen sharing and saying, show me where you got stuck? Tell me what, you, what you're what you trying to do? Was it was there any kind of process to it? Yeah, so it was uh, myself, David, my co-founder, and um, our first hire, Jen, um, who now leads our customer success team, and she's mm-hmm. based in Dallas. Um, the three of us basically did all this and had these kind of conversations. Um, and we did demos. We did a kind of like customer development uh, uh, conversations. And yeah. then when we realized that it was time to build a sales team, um, I found a, a guy who I actually heard him interviewed on the Sasta podcast. Um, sorry, I hope that's not like the wrong thing to say on it. On, Jason on Lemkin's thing. He's but fantastic. Yep. Fantastic. So a guy called Mark Godley, and he's a sales professional. I heard him talk about sales in a way I hadn't heard before. Um, and I, I, I approached him cold, and I just said, listen, Mark, I like what you had to say, and we're thinking about building a sales team. Can you help us out? Are you happy to have a conversation? And that's exactly what – and he agreed, and we had a conversation, and a, a bunch of them, and he joined as an advisor. And he helped us think through some of the fundamentals of well, what what's involved. How do you even think about – building a sales team from from zero when you don't have a sales process when you can't even yes. you don't know how to do sales comp because you don't even know what how much revenue yeah maybe you can do for me what you heard from him in the podcast because I, i'm fascinated by this process i think we all think we're selling we're internet first let's sell online it's got to be that but you're discovering that talking to customers selling with a human being helps how how much money did you have to invest in this? I've heard it takes a while. It's a, it's a process. It's expensive. Yeah. So so just a few sort of preliminary thoughts. First of all, today, more than fifty percent of um, the companies that buy our product are completely unassisted, self service, not through sales. Okay. Okay. Now that's okay. not fifty percent of the revenue. It's often the smaller ones. But okay. so we have kind of achieved that. Um, so it's not necessarily binary. It's not sales or not sales. It's, okay. it's, it's, you can have some buyers who buy through a sales process if they're a really big company or they need help. And then some buyers who um, prefer to buy, to buy on their own. So it's not, it's not binary. The second okay. thing is an important question to ask is, um, is value immediately obvious? So if you're selling toaster ovens, a toaster oven makes bread and you might make like a better toaster oven that makes warmer bread or it makes bread warm quicker. That's instant okay. value. But if you're selling like a solution or like a hovercraft, something that's compl- a completely different way of thinking about things, something that's new, it, value might not be instantly obvious. So you need to talk through it. You need to build a solution okay. for people. You need to take them on a journey. And that suggests that you may need uh, a combination of things, including a sales team. Now, in terms of um, the cost, so there are two types of salespeople. There are sort of renaissance salespeople, very rare. These are people who can come in when there's nothing and build, figure out what the sales process should look like. And then there are every other salesperson who expects to have a, a playbook and then can sell very well uh, based on that playbook. We needed the first kind. And there's a guy called Peter Kazanji who's wrote a book, who wrote a book, Founder, Founding Sales, and he's a big sort of advocate of um, the founder has to do sales initially. And when the founders worked out what 
how to sell, you bring on you bring on a team and there's a lot of truth in that. And then so when you hire salespeople, they're expensive because they want to be paid a lot, they want commission, they also need systems, whether it's HubSpot or Salesforce. If you you've got to figure out if you, how you're getting them leads, is it marketing inbound or is it outbound? In which case you need to do cold calling and email and they that costs and tools and data. So 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 what we did, we had no idea what is it inbound, is it outbound? So what we did was we ran a bunch of experiments. Um, we we basically we got an appointment setting agency for three or four months to see if that that can work. We did cold calling for a while. Um, we hired a rep here and a rep in the US and so, tried to figure out like, where are we getting better traction? We did, we did like a lot of different things with as much as we can, as much as we could, like the ability to kind of turn them on and off and figure out if they work until we developed a good understanding of who do we sell? What does that sort of sales process look like for Vervo at the time? And then build on okay. that. Wasn't easy, but but we got there. So how far along were you before you started building this with the product? We had a bunch of recurring revenue. I don't know, maybe like 50,000 okay. in ARR. So like like a little bit, something. Okay. And a, bu- and a bunch of customers... We didn't have Walmart at the time, but like we had a few logos that we could talk to, and we had, and we had, in hindsight, I'd say our positioning was mediocre. So we had like an okay sense of kind of the elevator pitch, but not great. And okay, and that's okay because the sales team helps develop that because they test things when they talk to people and when they send emails, mm-hmm. they test messages. So that that was kind of I was okay with that at the time. So we were we were early, but we but we had enough conviction to know people need this, they're going to use this. Now let's see if we can get a lot of traction. And so the book, the the company that you hired to book meetings, that's basically an SDR, right? Sales development rep, but outsourced. Who are they? Pretty much. Who are they doing it with? Were they doing it with the people who tried your software and abandoned? Were they doing it with people who filled out a form? Was it? No, they, no, what they do, what they do is, they will buy a list from Zoom Info or uh, okay. one of those kind of like, and, and, and they will do whatever we tell them. So if we say to them, we want companies with 2,000 to 5,000 employees in these geographies and we want, this is the buyer that we want, head of talent acquisition and we want whatever industry, that's what they'll do. And then they'll set up a combination of uh, usually email and phone sequence. Um, but they have people who are very, very good at getting someone's attention in 10 seconds and figuring out. And they set appointments. That's what they do. I mean, it's exactly, it's like it's like a ramped up SDR as a service, essentially. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And then you bring in salespeople. How'd you find the first salespeople? So we hired someone in Australia who we advertised like in the, in the normal way and they applied. Um, Mark, who I mentioned before, who came on as our advisor, introduced us to some people he'd worked with. Um, and so, so that was another. So having like a really good kind of advisor in the tent who knows sales is a good way to avoid really expensive mistakes when you're building a sales team. I mean, now that I've done it and we've done it, I can do it again. But having never done it in, in enterprise sales for software, it's good to have someone help you. Um, and then... And then that person, 
it, it sort of just like rolled, it snowballed from there. And the process I imagine at first is, here's a script that we think is going to work. Here's an understanding of the software. Spend some time with each customer by researching them before you get on a call with them and then get on a call and go through this process and help us iterate the process. Is that essentially it? Spot on. That's exactly right. So we had a hypothesis around the script. Um, we then started improving that and there were multiple scripts depending on is it a company that need, has an efficiency problem where they're trying to filter thousands of people or is it someone, a company that has a low volume mm -hmm. of highly skilled applicants, but wants to really predict performance. Um, we then had sort of, so that we then learned how to do discovery. What, what is this? What's like really good discovery and what do we need to learn? Um, once you've done discovery, who do you disqualify? Who do you qualify? Then the next step is what's a good demo? What's a good product walkthrough? Our demo was like terrible uh -huh. and too much focus on features, not on benefits. All these kind of things, like we st we made all yeah. the kind of you know mistakes, and so we learned like what's a really good demo where people where their eyes light up, and then pricing. So what you know pricing is a whole other that's a sign. So you know what's how do we um, price align price to value? So um, how do we price in a way that people feel like you know that that when they pay more they're getting more value? And what's the market doing around us? And do we want to be same or different? Um, and then, and then the next kind of bit after that, as companies get bigger, you have the sort of post value sales components like procurement, like getting through, which can be 75% of the work in a really big company. So once you've seen, people have seen value, you have to get through legal infosec, you know, mm. procurement, and that can be not to be underestimated. Wow. What's the, what's the feedback loop? How do you create a feedback loop where when someone finishes a call, someone finishes a demo, finishes any part of their process, they come back and help improve the process for next time? Yeah. So what we did and do till this very day, and it's kind of, I don't know how efficient it is at scale, but it's like really efficient in terms of speed. Um, we, we, we use Slack and in Slack, the sales team will post kind of a, a synopsis similar to what they put in the CRM, but they will mm -hmm. put like a summary of, I just had this call. This is what I learned. Um, these were the objections. This is what went well, what didn't um, and tag people from the product team and say, I got these things. I didn't know the answer to, or here's some feedback that of things that customers want um, and, and, and good sales reps, they don't just like throw the ball kind of in, in, into the court of the product team and say, give me these things. They know that you can't please everyone. They, they, they might say this customer wanted these things, but that's not core. They'll sort of filter that and they'll handle objections really well, but they'll know which feedback is really valuable to give mm. back to the product team. And our product team will that the same day, like instantly digest that feedback that doesn't mean they're going to act on it but they will they will digest that feedback instantly and that all gets um, cataloged and captured and so then we we have a really strong and immediate understanding of what is the market saying and then we have to decide yeah. is it a product problem or is it a sales problem so like are the sales reps making excuses do they need to handle objections better or mm. have we got a product gap and the senior people in the company get together and discuss those issues
And then what's what's the process for taking that and then feeding it back in? Is it one person at the end of the day goes through the Slack or end of the week and then starts to organize the common findings and then brings it back? It is. Yeah, so that that is the role of the product manager. The product okay. manager is responsible for the interface between the go-to-market side of the business, not just sales, by the way, customer success as well. So all the people who are talking to customers and product development, including product marketing, engineering, design, everything. So the product manager is kind of the glue in the company that uh, you know he or she needs to digest all that feedback and then decide what to prioritize, what to ignore, and so on. I'm assuming at the point that you started to do this, you'd already raised money. I'm looking at Crunchbase News. It says- yeah. May 2018, you raised 3.5 million. Is it after yeah, we you raised, raised that? Yeah, we, we 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 raised that round. After that round, that's when we um, built the sales team, expanded product, hired data science, and built our machine learning. That's exactly right. That's what gave us. You can't really. It, it's well, I don't want to say it's impossible because startups do all sorts of crazy things, but like. Um, it's difficult to hire a sales team without having capital. Now, maybe that capital can come from customers if you're like, you have really, really good um, traction very early and you've been able to do it without sales. But, you know, you want runway and you want capital to be able to hire a sales team because it takes time for them to figure out the process to ramp. You know, you've got to allow six months for an early sales team to really hit its stride. Um, and so for us, we were able to do that when we had some seed capital. Look at this. So some of the money came from Jesse Hertzberg, previous CEO of Etsy Squarespace. How do you know Yeah, him? he was CEO of, of Etsy and Squarespace. I love Jesse. He's a great guy. New Yorker like you. Um, just one of those kind of like operators who just understands founders and understands like you know um i think he was the first person who used who i heard use the term founder therapy um and uh -huh. we met jesse through an introduction and actually it was unrelated to capital um it was just a an introduction more about can you get us into one of those companies and then he just said hey i really like what you're doing can i can i jump in on the round and we were delighted to have to have him Looks like one of the first things he did was he created a site called Big Soccer back in 2000. I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't I'm know I'm looking that. him up just to get a sense of... Yeah, right? Um, all right. Let me talk about my second sponsor, and then I want to understand, once you figured this out, what happened to the product to get it to where it is today? Um, second sponsor is HostGator. What I like to ask Omer, my guests in the HostGator ad is... If you had nothing, you're just like, say, straight out of the army, can't get a job, but someone says, here, here's a website. It's hosted on HostGator, so you know it's going to be hosted well. Create an idea. Start a business. What's the business that you would create today if you had nothing but a website? How would you get started? Are you really asking, like, what? I'm really what? asking. Do you have, like, let's brainstorm here what you would do. What would Omer, you have your intelligence, you have nothing but a website, what would you create? to get yourself started. I have a few ideas of what I would do today, but what would you do? In it, well, I would do Vervo, but aside from that. <laughs> um, yes. 
my wife has this great idea where she wants to do science experiments with kids and and basically help kids kind of get excited about science, about chemistry, about physics. Um, and, and, you know, her idea of that is like physically going around and, and like going to people's houses. And, but I, as soon as I heard that, I thought, oh no, it's got to be subscription. There's going to be an app. There's going to be like, it's going to be global. People are going to be able to do it online and, and, you know, all over the world. So like, I don't know if you put me on the spot right this second, maybe I'd do that. And I'd love to do a business you know with what? my wife, for example. And, and what would it be? It would be to do testing, to do what with people? To do well, well, it would basically te- it would teach kids science, but in a way that's really fun and not it doesn't feel like um, the traditional kind of learning. It feels more like they're having a party and doing experiments and blowing yes. shit up and whatever. Great freaking idea! Now I would do exactly what you're doing. Do it remote. Here's why, dude. My wife just signed up for Hulu. I'm looking. We should cancel HBO Max. Why do we need Hulu, HBO Max, Netflix, and Amazon Prime? Got an extra one? Let's cancel one. My kid signed up for, I forget which which latest. Oh, it's Epic. Signing him up. Another 10 bucks. ABC Mouse. Another 10 bucks. Who cares? I'm comparing it to what it costs to send a kid to private school, right? And I'm comparing it to nothing. his intelligence. It's nothing. to one, one session with a teacher would cost 10 times that, right? So, of course, you do it. What I'm trying to say is when it comes to subscriptions, when it comes to education, we have an open wallet, right? Fairly open wallet. That's why it's brilliant. And we all have had those teachers who can make the topic fun, really interesting. I bet if you look around the country, around the world, and you say, you know what? Every first grader should learn this science, these science lessons. Let's go find the best teacher at it create video and create like these little things that the parents need to give the kids with the video and let the kids go crazy with it. That's the answer. That's, oh, that's freaking brilliant. I hope, I hope no one steals that idea because that's such a good idea. You and your wife should, cre- you're going to ask me to edit that out, aren't you? Because it's such a good idea. It's great. I, Science I, video, 10 bucks, 20 I've bucks learned, a month. You know, one, one thing I've learned through company building is that we have no fear of people stealing ideas. Um, if, if more people do it, that's great because that'll prove that there's a market. And there's, there are cases where there's like first mover advantage is a big thing, but usually it's not the first mover who wins, it's the best executioner who wins, executor, whatever the, the right word is, you know what I mean? So like my, I, my fear is like not executing well. My fear is not about being first or last. So, you know, definitely don't edit it out. You know, I think that's like, and and you know what else? I think if you have a a, a mission of, you know, every kid learning science, let's say that that's the mission. Well, then that's your mission. You want every kid to learn science. Your mission is not sell more software about science. So I I, I like like my mission to be both. Can it be both? Like every kid learn science from me. That's not good. I think, I, I think the sort of, the vision can be like, we want to make this mainstream and we want to be the market leader. But I think, you know, monopolies at the end of the day, if they're achieved, they end badly usually. So, so I would look at it and say, it's a really big world and I want everyone to learn science. And if we can play a massive role in that, that's already a $1,000 billion company right there. All right. I love this freaking idea. 
there is a site there's a site that does something kind of like it it's called 32 wonder i think it costs 10 bucks a month and here's why i bring this up basically they're using wistia videos to price gate the videos show you a little bit of the video then then because wistia has the features built in they could charge yeah. after you watch a little bit of the videos they have these pdfs that they attach but what they're doing is putting on a tv show it's a great tv show it's definitely worth paying for but it's not what you're talking about the experience mo will I'm, I'm going a little too far into this ad for hostgator hostgator did not pay for this kind of talk but here mo williams when the, when the coronavirus lockdowns first happened he's a writer kids writer he said every day at i think one o'clock pacific have your kids come with a piece of paper and these types of markers and i I will teach them how to draw something. So one day my kid do, drew, another kid, day my kid made a um, a board game, and so on. Every day with household items, he was teaching my kid to create. Same thing with the science. All right, listen up, people. Whether it's that idea or any other idea that you've got, you need a website to you need to host your website, right? The reason I recommend you go to HostGator is frankly because they're paying me, they're a sponsor, but. They're also hosting my site, and I have not had a single freaking problem with them. Have you been on my site in the last, what, three, four? I don't know how long they've been there. Let's say in the last year and seen an error. Has it taken too long? No, it just freaking works. I'm not getting special treatment. I'm paying for it. I'm not paying as much as I did when I paid for their competitors. So here's what you get. Reliable service, inexpensive, and it just freaking works and lets you build your idea. Take your ideas over to HostGator, and if you use HostGator.com slash Mixergy as your onboarding URL, they will give you the lowest possible price they have for already low prices. They'll lower it even further and give you excellent service. HostGator.com slash Mixergy. All right, let's talk about expanding. Now you've got your salespeople on, on there. The thing that blew my mind was, I went through Vervo. I thought I understood what Vervo did. I said, it's basically a form. And you said, well, yeah, you can ask people um, uh, multiple choice questions. You could have free form text boxes for them to answer. You could add, have them do video to respond to, to, your aunt, to your question. You could have audio. And then you said you could do Excel. And I said, you mean like go to an Excel spreadsheet, type out the answer and upload? No, you said, no, we embed the spreadsheet in. We embed all these other tools in. And then you said, you don't have to go through all this stuff. We have artificial intelligence. We have software that will go through the first pass of your, your candidates and then screen them out. And I said, that's great for text, right? For multiple choice. You said, no, even in the video, we will screen them out. So to get from where you were before, which is basically, as you said earlier to me, a form to where you are today, which is the embeddable part I get but computer analyzing and improving, that's a that's quite a road. Walk me through how you got there, how you improved the product. So there's two two kind of dimensions. One is the the format or the functionality that's used to test people, which um, influences how well you're predicting job performance. And then the second is the kind of scalability, um, the automation, so how you do it for lots and lots of people really quickly and usually they're at odds with each other because if you want scalability do like a you mentioned like a survey monkey like a four multiple choice right or wrong and you can get 10 million people to do that but then you're compromising on predictability because it's very rudimentary multiple choice doesn't tell you a lot about a person and we wanted to um you know allow our customers to have their cake and eat it too to have the best of both worlds so what we did was we collected a ton of data. The way we did that was we made it really, really easy and cheap, close to free, but not free for businesses to use our product. And we got thousands of them. And basically what they did was they, um, they paid like a one-off price and they could use the product 
up to a certain usage. And we got thousands of companies and tens of thousands of hiring managers and recruiters to test people and grade responses. And that gave us a data set. And we learned and we were able to understand what, the, the, we were able to understand sort of the correlation between how candidates are doing things and the scores they're getting. It's the digital equivalent of kind of one-sided mirror and observing um, people interacting in a room. So you're seeing how. So, and then we use that to develop machine learning models that, are, that go well beyond that, but that was the starting point. So the way that we automatically grade, and it, it's obviously evolved and improved over time. We have a data science team now, and we've been doing this for, for a while. But essentially what we do is there's that, the sort of ever-growing data set at the macro level. Um, then there is um, a comparison of a candidate answer to a series of expected or suggested answers. And then the third thing is there is the preferences of each company. So we teach each client how to train the models. And when I say we teach, the software does all this and it's, it's very quick. Um, how to train the models based on their preferences. So let's take an example. Let's say that Oracle and Snowflake are both hiring an enterprise salesperson, two big software companies, and, they, and there are 100 applicants and they all do the same test. Those 100 applicants will be ranked slightly differently for each of those companies. Why? Because they have different cultures, different operating rhythms. They care about different things. They're not going to be ranked in reverse order. They're, they're still going to be like really good software salespeople. But, you know, Oracle might care more about diligence and Snowflake might care more about speed or tenacity or, or you know, Snowflake has an outbound model. So they value like outbound email writing ability and Oracle might value commercial negotiation more. Whatever. Can you walk me through how you built the system that does that? I see the end result and I'm in awe. Can you walk me through it the way that you walked us through how you you figured out the sales process in the early days? How do you get to this? Yeah, so that, well, I'm lucky to have a, like a smart co-founder who spends all day and night on this um, so that I don't have to. But essentially like a bunch of smart people analyze data, find patterns, and then they build models. And they build models that learn, and that's the key. And just putting put to one side like the the user experience of this and the ability to explain it in the way that I am now uh, that took time that came later but the initial kind of the first the first huge leap was understanding the data understanding what is the significance of candidate behavior versus how recruiters are grading. So, so for example, looking at, the, there are many, many, many data points, but I'll just give you a few as an example, like typing speed, the order in which candidates are doing questions, how long they spend per question, typos, all these kind of things. They're not good or bad on their own, but all together, plus many other factors, they correlate to directionally a high or low score. And we were able to get that within a very small variance so automatically to what a, a person would grade on their own. And then the rest of the gap is bridged by the sort of training the model specifically for each company. Uh, 
I mean, it's that it's that's how data science works, essentially. But is is this something that you have to create from scratch for yourself, or is there some external solution that allows you to add this in? The reason I we, ask is I keep hearing Mark Cuban talk about how this is the future, but he also says whenever a company pitches him on it, he says, they're going to spend so much money, I don't see how they're going to succeed because this is really hard. It's the future and it's yeah. really hard and most people will fail at it. It is hard, but we did it. We did it ourselves. We did it all in-house. We didn't outsource any of it, not in terms of systems, not in terms of people. We built it. It was hard. It cost money. We have a very serious, very credible product and a very serious team. And that is what uh, one of the main things that differentiates us. Um, I can't really comment on sort of like, is this, you know, thinking of like the no code or low code world, is this something that's eventually going to be productized or commoditized? I, I don't know, not, not easily, but possibly to some extent. We did it ourselves. And we really had to because it's proprietary. It's some, It's like it's our IP. It's what makes us special. This isn't something you want to get off the shelf. I couldn't find David, your co-founder, David Weinberg, the CTO. He's the guy who you said is responsible for this. I couldn't find his LinkedIn profile. I believe he doesn't even have a LinkedIn profile. He does, but he I won't. But he'll tell you that he that he he'll he'll tell you he never goes on LinkedIn. But but he does. Have a I, I'm not profile. surprised. There's very little about him online. Here's what I was able to find. In an old PR thing on him, I saw that he was uh, the principal architect for Australia's Department of Defense. That's the caliber of person that we're talking about. Yeah, so he... Right? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a bit about David, and I'll tell you something unexpected. So he worked in in the Valley for seven years at Juniper Networks in their corp dev team. He's a cybersecurity architect. He was the principal architect for the Department of Defense. So he's like, you know, very technical, but that's not what's special about him. He's what's special about him. So in between all of that, he bought and ran a cake business um, that made like pastries and cupcakes and delivered to all the airlines. And he did that because he loves cupcakes and he wanted an unlimited free supply of muffins and cupcakes. But Jokes aside, like he, he's actually like. But no, he literally did this. It was, uh, I remember writing this down in my notes, but w he wasn't doing it in a small bakery. Like you said, he went big, supplying it to airlines, to yeah. hospitals, really. And he, and the thing about David, he, he's an entrepreneur. And what he said to me once is that he's a better strategist than he is a technologist and he's a very good technologist. So, you know, he, he's not sort of like a boffin in a dark room. He's actually a strategist. And that's what, kind of it makes it work that he can see the market unfolding. Um, he can, you know, he, he's always sort of advocating for true innovation, um, even though that's harder because it's easier to just give people what they want today. Um, and so he's sort of played a massive role in all the, the questions you've been asking me now, like how did we do this and all of that, you know. And so, um, you know, the two of us together – is sort of what's made this made this work, um, and he's. How sort did of, you become friends? You've yeah, been we, friends we, for like fifteen years. Yeah, twenty plus. So um, when I in two thousand, the year two thousand, I moved from Israel to Melbourne, and I caught up with an old friend who I went to primary elementary school with for the Americans, and um, he was uh, living at the time. 
with David. And so I just met him through a friend and we were friends for years. And then I rang him one day and said, I've got this idea about hiring. I want to do something. And he said, well, first of all, your idea is stupid. And second, how can you have an idea about starting a company and not call me first? Like that was the conversation. Uh, But here's a way that your idea could work. And and that's like how we started. I said, okay, okay, well, tell me. And that's how we started talking about this. Uh, Just like as a brainstorming session, what did he see in you? What do you, if you were to look through his eyes, why do you think he wanted to get married to you? I have no idea. No, look, I think, so we complement each other. Like he doesn't want to be doing this. He doesn't want to be like hiring, hiring and firing people. He doesn't want to be like, talking to investors all day. He doesn't want to have to manage, like there are just like, you know, there are kind of, when you're a founder, you take all sorts of pain and you've got to choose which pain you take. And, you know, we we kind of have a, 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 almost an intuitive and seamless kind of like understanding of how to play to to each other's strengths. And, And sort of like all the traditional things you'd expect of a CEO, like kind of, um, you know, building a team, raising money, evangelizing in the market. They're the things that I kind of naturally do and he would rather like scratch his eyes out. Uh, but what he wants to do is like ideate, innovate, build, change the, the world and, and, and but do that like on a whiteboard um, but still be recognized for that and play a part in that. And so that that's kind of like the, the kind of um, the dynamic between us that, that works. All right, that makes sense. All right, let me close out with this. That same PR piece that I see from 2017 calls you a hiring assistant. Online hiring assistant Vervo launches in the US with a million dollars in funding. You stopped using the, the name hiring assistant. Why? I kind of like it. Remember I told you earlier that our positioning was mediocre? Um, mm-hmm. So I think like hiring assistant is is good in that, okay, it's it's clear that we solve a problem in hiring, um, but it, it did make people, it, it wasn't clear that we solve a problem around proficiency and that we do skill testing. And it made people think that maybe mm. we're that Kanban board that you mentioned earlier. And yeah. and, and uh, there's a woman called April Dunford. She wrote a book called Obviously Awesome about positioning. And positioning is, is like an underrated area. And when you're positioned incorrectly, People compare you to the wrong things. They then have the wrong expectations around your product and pricing. And it's like really hard to fix that kind of once that impression's formed. So that was not great positioning for us. The better positioning for us was skill testing, you know, predicting job performance, see people do the job before they get the job, or that, that sort of positioning. So it wasn't that hiring assistant was bad, it was a step in the right direction, um, and then we took further steps. I'm looking at her site. I've seen her. I've seen her book recommended so much on Twitter. I don't know. Why I haven't read it. Give me one. One. I keep wanting more from you. We got to end this. But how about one more? You've you've talked to me already about a few different books, both book. before and during the interview. Give me one more that's been that you recommend or has big influence. Yeah. Um, so there's a book by David Epstein called Range how generalists triumph in a specialized world. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's had a massive influence on me because I kind of 
until re- until I read that book, I thought, I'm just this like lost soul. I've done all these different things in life and none of it makes sense. Scattered resume. And what he talks about this thing called analogous thinking. And he says that the people who are sort of the captains of industry, the high performers, um, usually are people who are actually generalists. And then what they've done is they've, they've, they've been like ballet dancers and then doctors or they've been carpenters and then they've gone to be something else. And the reason is that your frame of reference expands and you learn how to think about things differently and see them from a different lens. And then you come to a, a different field where everyone's one dimensional. They've been like brainwashed to do things. So wait, but you see it through a different lens. And I had that innately through like the military. I worked at the Red Cross. I worked in corporate. I worked, some people look at that and say, you're all over the place. But yeah. this book helped me understand that actually all these things are apprenticeships. And when I'm do- what I'm doing now, I can use my learnings and thinking and different perspectives from each of those experiences to see things in a more expansive and creative way. And that's actually like a really good thing. So for me, that book was really self-affirming. There is now this understanding that that having that diversity is helpful, where in the past it was be the best at this one thing, and that's the answer. All right, Range, and look at the freaking reviews on this, both from named people um, and also just from people on on uh, Amazon. All right, dude, I wish you'd talk more. I wish you would be out at conferences more. I freaking love listening to you. But Thank you, you so probably much. You have to stay when, and work. As soon as the world becomes healthy and safe to travel, I've got to get back to, you know, I, I used to be like five, six times a year in the U.S., and it's killing me. I've got to get out of the house more. So as soon as we can do it, I'm there, including New York City. No, I'm so ready. So ready. So close. All right, Omar. Oh, and I am in San Francisco now, but I'm, I think I'm making the move over to and, Austin. And we already got our kids in school there. Come see me there. My second home, the Bay Area. Or in the Bay Area, or I'll come to Melbourne. Thank you. The website is vervo, V-E-R-V-O-E.com. I'm grateful to the two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first, if you need email marketing done right, Go to sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. And if you need a website hosted, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. Thank you. Bye, everyone.